everyone. It's uh, Larry Kotlikoff here. I'm delighted to have my old friend Gene Sterling uh, on uh, Economics Matters, the podcast. Gene's uh, got a remarkable career that's uh, still ongoing uh, very actively. Uh, he's the Institute Fellow and research, Richard B. Fisher Chair at the Urban Institute. The Urban Institute does a slew of research on uh, fiscal policy for the government and for uh, just for research uh, uh, funded that's uh, funded by uh, institutions, uh, foundations. Uh, Gene's the uh, co-founder of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. And when you're uh, hearing about a new proposal, uh, either by the administration or by uh, the opposition, uh, when it comes to fiscal policy, it could be a new tax change, the the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. Anything major is going to be evaluated by the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, in addition to the Congressional Budget Office. And this is like the, the, the independent check on what the CBO is estimating. So it's a very important institution, the Urban Institute and the uh consortium between the Urban Institute and Brookings, the Tax Policy Center, and Gene's the co-founder of that. Uh, and he's also um, the um, co-founder of the Urban Institute Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy and other uh, Urban Institute programs that he's been involved in. Um, and in the past, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Tax Analysis. That's the highest ranking personal finance or fiscal authority at the U.S. Treasury. So it's a very major position, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Tax Analysis. He was v Vice President of the Peter Peterson Foundation, uh, co-director of the Urban Brookings T Tax Policy Center, as I just mentioned, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So he's not, uh, Brookings tends to be more on the left of center. Uh, AI is more of the right of center. Gene is really right down the middle when it comes to politics. He's not into politics. He's into the facts and the truth and what we should be doing in, in our problems. As you'll hear, uh, he was the federal executive fellow of the, at the Brookings. Uh, he's a columnist for tax notes and the Financial Times. He's had all kinds of positions. Uh, he's worked uh, uh uh, with the uh, National Tax Association as their president, the chair of the board of advisors for the National Center on Philanthropy, um, chair of uh, the National Academies panel on the use of economic evidence to inform investments in children. Uh, it, it, the list just goes on and on. If you just Google Gene Sterling at, um, you'll see his Wikipedia page. Uh, he's worked for the IMF and uh, other international institutions for countries like China and uh, Singapore and Slovakia on missions from the IMF. And then he's quite the scholar. He's written all kinds of research papers, but also uh, I think he's got 1,500 articles. Uh, these are briefs, reports, columns, congressional testimonies. That's, uh, But also he's written 18 books. And the most recent or one of the most recent, recent of these books is called Dead Men Ruling, uh, at deadmanruling.com. You can take a look and purchase the book. It, it received the um, Paul Samuelson Award. It's, uh, it's awarded by the uh, uh, TIA um, CREF. Uh, it's um, given out annually to the best uh, book in, in personal finance, and uh, and he's received this book. And that, the book's more about about fiscal policy, but it's uh, received this very prestigious award. Um, he um, uh, He's written about contemporary U.S. tax policy, advancing the power of economic evidence, inform investments in kids. He has a column called The Government We Deserve uh, that he he's still writing uh, at Substack. So you should follow him on, on his uh, governmentwedeserve.substack.com. Uh, you should get a subscription to that, either paid or unpaid. Um, main thing is to read his work. Anyway, Gene, delightful to have you here. And uh, I want to uh, 
thank, you know, first of all, say how great it is that I've been able to be in touch with you and talk to you and be a friend of yours for so many years. But then I also want us to do a little homework here, which is tell uh, the listeners and the viewers uh, just to start off about how you view the overall fiscal situation in the country. And then in general terms, what we need to, to fix and why we're stuck in this kind of situation and explain in the process of all this, this title dead men ruling, what exactly does that mean uh, when it comes to fiscal policy? Why do we have the dead people ruling our fiscal situation? So let's start with, you know, how you view, given we've got no speaker of the house and the other speaker, the, uh, McCarthy, McCarthy was just um, dethroned uh, because of allegedly being fiscally irresponsible. This is Matt Gates. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, he and other uh, members of the House uh, just uh, kicked Kevin McCarthy out of his job. I think this is the first time a Speaker of the House has been booted from that position. So it's a big deal. And we have no speaker as we're right as we're speaking right now, so we can't pass any kind of legislation of any kind to help Ukraine uh, to deal with Israel's uh, uh, the, the uh, terrorist uh, ongoing terrorist uh, situation in Israel to assist Israel uh, or to do anything until we get a speaker, and it may be uh, weeks or months until that happens. Who knows? Because the Republicans are so uh, at each other's throats. Uh, you know, there's how we got there, but but what's the overall picture? Uh, take it away. Tell me, tell us, you know, how you see in your long experience with U.S. fiscal policy, how you see things evolving. Well, that's that's a well uh, a lot to ask, uh, Larry. But let me let me try. Uh, I th I think some of our current problems, and I, I don't want to exaggerate. I, I'm not a a one variable economist. I don't think there's just one answer to to multiple sets of problems, but I do think that our inability to even uh, enact good budget policy uh, and to actually uh, uh, do a lot of other things actually does relate to the fact that uh, Congress, at least the members of Congress, have turned to things like cultural wars uh, to be able to uh, to get attention. So it's not unusual for our elected officials to fight among themselves. But traditionally, on the fiscal side, uh, revenues came in uh, automatically with government once you established a tariff or income tax or anything else. And when you have a growing economy, those revenues grow. And so the job of Congress is to figure out what to do with those revenues. Now, they can return them back to the taxpayer in the form of tax cuts, if you want, but with just a you know, flat rate tax, much less a progressive tax. The revenues keep rising over time. Uh, and so Congress uh, has never really had that much problem uh, giving the money away or doing something with it, right? I mean, it's you know, it's pretty natural. And of course, the members of Congress like to tell us what they're doing with our money, the things they're giving us. They seldom discuss what I call the takeaway side of the budget, which is uh, how you finance all the things they want to do on the giveaway side. Uh, but that's been relatively easy to do until modern times. And the dilemma is caused by the fact that uh, dead men, and they are generally men, uh, legislators from the past kept putting into the law more and more provisions, more and more laws that set forever uh, uh, the direction of programs. And it wasn't just that the programs were made permanent, unlike, say, discretionary spending when you're building roads or uh, highways or, uh, or you know, beefing up uh, uh, land grants to uh, uh, for a while to, to various states. Uh, once you put in permanent programs, uh, they don't have to go through an appropriations process. And the dilemma in the, in the permanent programs really resides in the fact that so many of them have growth built into them. And we could get into the details of how they do it. But basically, if you look at the way Social Security was designed after the mid-70s and the way Medicare has been designed from the beginning, they're scheduled to grow forever. And for reasons I could get into, they're scheduled to grow forever faster than the economic growth than revenues. So they start absorbing more and more of uh, of uh, of the outlay side of the budget, uh, and the revenues are growing, but they're not growing as fast 
as the spending. So all of a sudden, I should say all of a sudden, over several decades, you've built up this system where now the uh, spending curve, the automatic spending curve, is growing faster than the uh, uh, than the revenue curve. Uh, and what that means is that the job of, of elected officials is no longer to figure out how do we give away this extra revenue that keeps coming in every year with economic growth. Now the job of legislatures is to decide how to renege on past promises uh, to be able to get this system into balance. And they can't do it politically. At least they haven't been able to do it politically. But they're changing the subject and talking about culture rather than the fact that they put in place or other people in the past have put in effect a Ponzi scheme in place, taking from the young to give to the old for these entitlement programs. And uh, because of aging and because of the uh, changes in, uh, uh, well, I guess the inequality like in earnings, I know that Social Security's revenues are suffering because more of the earnings, bigger share, ever bigger share is, go, uh, is uh, uh, above the taxable earnings ceiling. So that's, you know, one of the aspects that is not being adjusted. Uh, well, in, in addition to that, the by creating permanence of these programs, it's not amenable to other changes. So one of the reasons for the growth in Social Security, and it's, it's a big reason over time, even though year to year it looks small, is the fact that we really never adjusted. Well, we made one small adjustment for the fact that people are living longer and longer. So a typical couple now who retires at 62 if they have average life expectancy, will get benefits for about 30 years. That's about 20 years each in terms of each individual life expectancy, but the longer living the two is liable to make it to about 30. Or to put it in language that's more common to most people picking up uh, uh, articles in the paper and social media, is, is it's not uncommon for a, a, at least one out of two people to make it to age 90. Uh, uh, so uh, that wasn't adjusted. And then the big adjustment that's going on now is that the, the decline in the birth rate took place in the mid-60s, and the system was never designed to adjust for that. And of course, that doesn't start really playing out on the benefits in Social Security until you get to 2008. That's when the first of the baby boomers start retiring or hit age 62. Yeah. So the system was never, never by creating all these permanent provisions, it's not adaptable to the new needs of the economy. And, and in fact, we could get into this in detail. I would argue Social Security, huge number of these programs, the money's not going for the biggest needs in the economy. You know, like one of the biggest healthcare needs right now has to do with these deaths of despair, you know, from opioids and, and obesity, everything else. The, the, the healthcare system is not adjusting to that. It's still, I mean, it, it's spending more, but, but uh, in acute and chronic care, but not in preventative care. So we're just not adjusting to new needs. And so the, the system, the problems actually start multiplying on each other in this fiscal space. Uh, and and as I say, the elected members are afraid to say, I, we, we or somebody in the past has made too many promises, uh, but we don't want to cut back on it. I, I should add, by the way, on the Republican side, you have in the uh, late 70s, Jude Wininsky, uh, who was a, an editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal, wrote a piece called The Two Santa Theory. And he argued that Democrats have gotten to be Santa Claus, mainly on the spending side. Uh, and that's why they, the Republicans, could never win elections or could sort of win elections. You may remember that the uh, Republicans didn't have the House of Representatives under their control, except for two terms all the way from 1932 to 1994. They only had it for four years out of that and that's partly because the Democrats appear, at least this is the argument of Winsky, they keep giving away money and we're, we're saying we're going to be the, you know, the fiscal guardians. So Winsky argued, let's stop being the fiscal guardians. Let's start giving away money on the tax side, uh, the way the Democrats do on the, on the spending side. Uh, and then we'll also argue that some extreme version of supply side economics means any tax cut will pay for itself, no matter what the, no matter what rate you start at. Right. The problem just doesn't say the problem keeps multiplying. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must read. 
Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, You'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. So at this point, Gene, would you... Uh, conclude that the country's bankrupt, you know, fiscally speaking, if we maintain the, if we were to maintain the current policy, fiscal policy, not have any fundamental structural reform of Social Security, health care, the tax system, uh, is what we're doing sustainable? Well, it's not sustainable. I mean, if you, you know, you can't have, you, you know, it's, uh, uh, I paraphrase Herb Stein, what can't continue won't. Uh, you know, I think his line is more, what can't go on forever will not go on forever. But uh, uh, no, it's not sustainable, and I, and I think every everyone actually knows that. Uh, but they they're not willing to deal with it, or at best they're willing to deal with it in short term fixes. I should say also that we went through a number of fixes in the uh, particularly in the uh, 1980s and and in 1990s, uh, but they were they were short term or medium term fixes. They never solved the basic problem, uh, and I don't think that type of fix works anymore. Where you just try to solve you know what's coming along for the next five years or ten years because the, all of this is accelerated. This this growth, this compounding growth I'm talking about has has meant that the uh, the pressure yeah. becomes greater and greater over time. So the way I like to think about Herb Stein's statement, uh, or to amend Herb Stein's statement that what co- can't go on will stop, is that what can't go on will stop too late. And if you go back. For example, to the Greenspan Commission in '83, where they were supposed to fix the long-term fiscal problem of Social Security, the unfunded liability, they decided to look at just look out just 75 years. Uh, we're now and, and ignore the the fact that there were large cash flow projected deficits after 75 years, and we're now many years into that 75-year window, uh, and the so looking too long, too short term, and then not even dealing with that seventy-five year unfunded liability, uh, the assumption being that the economy would absolutely die after seventy-five years, it would just end, or nobody would receive benefits thereafter or pay taxes. That was ridiculous, but that's still the the focus of Congress, just the, the seventy-five year horizon. So what they did is they kind of operated on a tumor. They decide to operate on a third of the tumor. And now if you look at the size of the tumor, uh, it's about twice as big as it was when they uh, did their operation back in 83 in the sense that they required tax hike, payroll, FICA payroll tax hike, if you think about the percentage point increase, it's 4.7 percentage points to get rid of, to, to, to be able to pay for the time path of Social Security benefits through time, not just 75 years, but over the infinite horizon, according to the trustees report, you need a 4.7 percentage point increase. If you go back to the trustees reports before the Greenspan Commission, uh, we needed more like about a two percentage point increase uh, to deal with the infinite horizon liability. So from that metric where the tumor's gotten twice as big. And you know, a little little footnote to that, which is just consistent with what you said is, the way they designed a reform in 83 to be in balance over 75 years meant that when you got near the end of those 75 years, you were running fairly big deficits. What that meant is that in 1984, you know, essentially they uh, meant that the system would go back out of 75-year balance. That is, 75 years after 84 would be out of balance, even though the 75 years, uh, the way they did the accounting, from 83 would be imbalanced because you're basically starting replacing a good year where you're building up a tiny bit of surplus with a bad year where you're running deficits. Right. And this was a respected economist named Alan Greenspan running the commission. You had Senators Moynihan and you had other uh, well-respected uh, senators from the from the Republicans. It's all made up of politicians and Greenspan. Maybe there was one or two other people who are not politicians, but this is what you get when you put politicians in charge of dealing with, uh, you know, what we need really is uh, 
some technocrats running the country for several decades to get things fixed. This is not unlike Italy or Argentina in terms of how we're uh, how the politicians are manipulating uh, what what people learn. I mean, nobody is telling the public that we're operating on looking at uh, when these trustees reports come out, uh, even the trustees, which include the secretary of treasury, she's the chief trustee, my my good friend, Janet Yellen, the, the discussion at the beginning of the trustees report, which came out of March 31st of 2020 of this year, uh, doesn't say anything about the uh, infinite horizon unfunded liability, that it's more than, it's like 60% uh, well, the the seventy five year unfunded liability sixty percent forty percent of the of the sixty five point nine trillion infinite horizon unfunded liability that they report in Table Six F one way in the back of the appendix. Yeah, I'm, it's all so far back in this report that it's almost out of the report. It's so well, it's, the, the, the 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 dilemma now is uh, in substance the people that wanted to have higher benefits have sort of won the, won the game. We're so near to the day of reckoning when the trust funds run out of money in the sense that they run out of the uh, 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 any assets with which yeah. they can uh, that they can spend down. We're so close to that day that there's no benefit type adjustment you can make even today that can possibly get the system uh, back into some sort of at least even current level of balance. And so that means in the short run, most analysts have concluded that you're inevitably going to have to have either tax increases or some borrowing from general revenues uh, to be able to support the system for a while. Uh, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention in the long run. I, I looked at some of uh, the uh, work done by the uh, Steve Goss and the actuaries, and just adjusting the retirement age uh, with longevity. So if we live a year longer, we would uh, 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 continue to have the same number of benefits, not have an extra year of benefits. By the 75th year, that ended up covering close to half of the actuarial imbalance, or not the actuarial imbalance, but the annual imbalance in that year. But if you start adjusting uh, today, it does little or nothing for the first five or 10 or 15 years. And that's why I, I put such emphasis on these growth rates that are built into the system and the extent to which we need to build new flexibility into the system. And going beyond Social Security, I, I keep trying to, most all my writings, keep trying to make the point this is not just a future problem and it's not just waiting for the system to blow up. It's actually causing all sorts of problems now. So in point of fact, uh, by a number of measures, including those of the Congressional Budget Office, the elderly uh, have higher incomes than the non-elderly. And yet we're asking the non-elderly to contribute ever more of their earnings to support future elderly uh, elderly benefits when the needs now of the non-elderly in many cases are equal to those of the elderly. There's also a crazy aspect of Social Security. They, they keep shoving off some of the really uh, desperate people among the elderly, uh, off into things like what's called supplemental security income. And that doesn't really adjust the way Social Security does. So we still have a number of elderly in poverty. And the system's quite rich enough to, to, to solve the elderly poverty problem. But uh, but there's a refusal to do it because they've already pre-committed all this money. A final aspect of this that, that I that I get into is, is uh, and this requires require a lot more explanation, is I think a lot of the growing wealth inequality we've had as a society is related to this, this these fiscal, and if you want monetary policies, they can continue. The monetary policy one being, well, let me give you a simple number. Let me summarize it in terms of, of, of interest rates. Uh, if you look at uh, 1980 versus today, uh, the debt of the, the debt to the public has quadrupled from about 25% to 100% of GDP. The interest paid by the government, now mind you, there's some accounting problems here, I know, but, but the interest paid by the government, the way they account for it, uh, as a share of GDP didn't grow at all. So debt grows fourfold and interest costs don't grow fourfold. Well, that day is another day that's ending. And I think we see it in these rising interest rates, which I don't think are just a temporary phenomenon. Uh, we've lived off of these very low, if not negative, after tax, after inflation interest rates for most of the of the 21st century. And I don't think that's that can be sustainable either. I don't think that can continue forever using Herbstein. 
And so now as interest rates go up, it's no longer the case that the rising debt doesn't cause interest costs to go up. Now they will build on each other, right? So the rising debt not only will increase interest costs at a given rate, it's going to increase costs even more because the rates will be able to, to rise or at least stay in real terms closer to where it is now. Yeah, the, the CBO uh, Congressional Budget Office is project, projecting in its latest long-term budget outlook, it's, it's projecting that in 2053, uh, we're going to have a debt-to-GDP ratio, uh, and this is really debt in the hands of the public. So it's a little bit lower number than gross debt, which a lot of people talk about, like Matt Gates when he was kicking uh, Kevin McCarthy out of his job, uh, he and his other gang of eight members was referring to the the gross debt as being 33 trillion. But the, the net debt, uh, after you uh, consider how much of the debt has been bought up by the Federal Reserve in exchange for, let's say, newly printed money, that's about 100% of GDP right now, 94%. It's actually gone down due to inflation um, in the in the Biden administration, so, uh, but the CBO is projecting it to go up to 153 percent of GDP, uh, and therefore the that's the net debt as a share of GDP. Gross debt as a share of GDP would probably, be, uh, sorry, it's 183 percent of GDP. Did I say 100? 183 percent of GDP, um, and the gross debt would probably be 200 percent of GDP. So. The CBO is showing that this is just not sustainable. Social Security trustees report is saying we've got a massive problem just with Social Security that we need to go from a 12.4% combined employer-employee FICA tax to 17% point immediately and permanently, let's just say today, to just keep Social Security solvent. And we've got um, uh, Medicare projected to grow uh, out of control, continue to grow uh, Medicaid because of the aging uh, and because of healthcare cost growth. So the whole thing is a picture of disaster, awaiting the country, awaiting our kids. Uh, it looks very much like Argentina. Argentina was uh, had about 80% of our per capita GDP in 1920, it now has about 14% of our per capita GDP. So countries that run for long periods of time, terrible fiscal policy, end up destroying saving, national saving, national investment, uh, growth, and end up with super high marginal taxes, nobody, and inflation, and people don't want to work. So you have, uh, and you have a bigger uh, black, black market economy, um, informal sector, the whole thing, seems to be where we're heading. Uh, what would you do if you were president? As I say, I, I, I think why well, I agree with that, uh, I think the focus on something happening down the road is is dodging the issue of what we're doing to ourselves right now in terms right. of what, what we're not doing. You know, we're saying we can't afford uh, to support Ukraine. Uh, whatever you think about that issue, it's not costing that much relative to our economy. We say we can't deal with, uh, I mentioned, you know, diseases of despair. We're not, we've really cut way back on on what our children and youth have. Student debt policy has been like a disaster. It's not unrelated. It's not, a, and it's going on now. You know, so uh, uh, I, I think what what we have to do to be able to get some public attention to this is, is to recognize that these costs are current. You know, admittedly, they've been hit a little bit by this this declining interest rate. That we've had for some time, but uh, uh, the costs are current. They're they're taking place right now. There's a lot of squeezing out of things that we could be doing or should be doing. And even even if you want smaller government, I think Republicans and Democrats alike would agree we could do a lot of things better with whatever money we spend. Right? Absolutely. But, yeah. but, but, yeah. but and remember that it's it's not just that so much is committed to programs like like Social Security and healthcare. It's that over 100% of the growing revenues are committed. So at the margin, it's the new things that we're blocking from take uh, from happening uh, that make a difference. I'll give you an example from history too. You know, there used to be big debates over over whether AFD, what was called AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, 
now called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families after some Clinton era reforms. You know, that in the 1960s, that occupied about half of all the social spending for the non-elderly. Uh, and it was a moderately big program. It had grown, you know, that way through a variety of reasons. Well, over time, uh, it wasn't indexed to grow that much, except for a number of people. And it declined and declined and declined as a share of GDP and got replaced, not so much by some direct reform, but over time, it started getting replaced by things like uh, uh, food stamps, now called uh, SNAP, and, and the EITC. And while uh, I'm not saying those are perfect programs by any means, I think they were better than what we had before. And the, the fact that the AFDC was not scheduled to grow and would decline over time in importance, even though at that time it wasn't entitled, but it was a permanent program, it was still declining in importance. So it left, there was still room, there was still room to allocate these growing revenues to something else and maybe something better. Yeah. So that's part of the trap yeah. now. We, we, we can't allocate our money toward what we would agree upon as, as, as a people. A need priority needs priority. Right, I think it's very yeah, very important point that that the crunch is here now. It's not just uh, down the road, uh, and you know, down the road is not that far when it comes to Social Security because the, on a cash flow basis, uh, I think it's twenty thirty four. We're going to need a, a 25 percent benefit cut just to, uh, according to law, that we have to cut benefits if we don't have enough money in the trust fund to cover the. Well, and the, the, the hospital insurance portion of Medicare is 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 going to run out of funds even sooner than Social Security. Yeah, and then you have, I mean, another thing that uh, Matt Gates needs to learn uh, when he was talking about the fact that uh, you know spending on Ukraine was going to be is somehow the reason that we have this huge uh, gross public debt, and that we're, uh, but the reality is that the two thirds of of spending is on entitlements is mandatory is outside the the ability of the house of representatives anybody in congress to change its own autopilot and the amount of that he was talking about uh of spending that the uh, house could actually control is maybe 10 13% of the total budget so and you do see in you know from academia's perspective you see uh major reductions in relative to GDP, relative to uh, uh, to where we would otherwise have been um, in, the, for example, funding of the National Science Foundation. So when I was a grad, grad student, lots of kids were on National Science Foundation uh, scholarships. And, uh, and then you had uh, a lot of research being funded by the NSF. Today, it's essentially impossible to get funded by the NSF. But when, when you and I went to college, it was not that that great of a burden either. Right. Oh, yeah. So you know, this, this, this whole reliance on, in fact, I think we in the economics profession really get this wrong. I know a lot of economists who, who look at student debt and they compare the debt that one might incur relative to the uh, uh, assets they might build up if they get educated. So even for the person who succeeds by going to college. But I think what this ignores is that as we've displaced uh, support for uh, for students in undergraduate school with more and more debt, we've added to their uh, financial debt, but we really haven't added to the net amount of human capital that's being developed. That is, we're not really putting more people through college and, and with better better courses. So we th if you think at the margin, anytime you want to incur more debt, you want your buildup of assets to be greater. If you're just merely incurring more debt so that you can finance consumption by other people, not necessarily by the students, you know, uh, 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 you actually are just decreasing the net worth of, of the young people. And if you look at any of the statistics, such as from the survey, survey of consumer finances, on the extraordinary decline in, in the wealth of young people, uh, that's related to this, this transfer uh, by by deciding the students could pay more uh, out of, in debt or gather up debt uh, while we finance other consumption by by government. And then that has another repercussion in the sense that you have more and more students now delaying family formation, buying homes, so they're not building up wealth that way. So this is just another example how these 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 forces they interact well you know this well, Larry, it's 
it's within the budget. All, everything interacts. You know, you can't move one thing in a budget without having a repercussion somewhere else in the budget right. because it's got these constraints that that has to add up in some way. And then you have a 40, uh, 40, 40 up now is, is, is not good. Yeah. Then we have about 40% of the kids going starting college who don't actually finish. So they borrow for the, uh, uh, for, for really, uh, you know, for nothing, uh, in terms of the outcome, but they have to pay it back potentially through the rest of their days. I know a lot of people personally who are still paying back their student loans in their sixties. I think there's something like 3 million people in that boat. Uh, I was reading the other day, uh, some lady had a student loan obligation started out around 50,000. It's now $500,000. Um, she's stuck for, and of course, if you don't, can't pay back, interest will accumulate. And uh, if you've borrowed at a high rate, because rate, like right now, rates are high, probably presumably setting those student loan rates high, a high rate, if rates come back down, you can't refinance at a lower rate uh, unless you do it through uh, the private sector, which is going to be very expensive too. How financially secure do you feel? Imagine a tool to help you make smart financial decisions, a tool that factors in all your financial data and shows what you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. That tool is Maxify, powerful, accurate, and easy to use. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify takes the guesswork out of financial decisions at every stage of life. Maxify calculates what you can afford to spend now and throughout retirement. And you can run what-if scenarios to see how your finances might change by taking a new job, buying a home, or downsizing. Knowing the impact before you decide lets you make smarter decisions so you can finally enjoy financial peace of mind. Are you ready? Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. Anyway, let's talk about solutions. What would you do, uh, Gene, if you were president? Uh, well, if I, if I was president, I would... Uh, uh, well, you, you, I think you know, Larry, I, I was the economic coordinator and was organizer of the, the 84 Treasury Study led the Tax Reform Act of 86. Okay. And what what we did in that act, which I think was unique, is we really took a broad look at taxes. In fact, we we took a broader look look than had ever done been done before by Treasury. Uh, I mean, we got into the nitty gritty. We we got into even such things as tunnel bores, which I don't even know what they were. But it's it's whether you depreciate the the bores that are made through mountains so that the railroads and highways can go through them. But we looked at we looked at everything because we decided this this needed a comprehensive look, and what that allowed us to do, which was somewhat unique, is is we actually changed the uh, um, the burden of proof in the political debate. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, traditionally, when you come in in budget or tax or spending items, we sort of argue things one at a time. And when you get to the what I'll call the takeaway side, which that Tax Reform Act did have a lot of, you know, where we cut back on a lot of things in order to finance what we wanted, which was partly the rate cuts that are. Uh, that Ronald Reagan wanted, but also uh, the efficiency that a lot of uh, Democrats wanted. But we had a lot of takeaways. And usually when you go in and have a, a laundry list of takeaway items, uh, the people who, who get hit say, why are you why are you picking on me? You know, uh, Larry Kotlikoff's got these great benefits. Why, why'd you come after me, Gene Sterling? Well, when you try to be comprehensive, it sort of changes the terms of the debate because now, uh, now someone comes. If I want to protest, uh, what your response can be if you're sitting in treasury or you're the president? Well, wait a second. Why should you, Gene, be accepted from some general rule, some general reform that I'm that's going to involve everybody is joining in the effort? So I, I don't think there's any way out of this this fiscal dilemma, uh, compounded by what I think is going to have to happen in monetary policy. I don't think there's any way out without asking a lot of the public relative relative to what they think they've been promised. Uh, but as I say, what they've been promised is unsustainable, and it's mainly growth and benefits in the future that's 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 unsustainable. It's not some current level. We don't need to cut back on the Social Security benefits of uh, uh, existing elderly people. Uh, we just need to figure out some ways to to slow down that growth. 
And that's how I would explain it. I said, we've got to be in this together. That's that's going to be a hard item to fix. I don't know that a Congress can do it without strong presidential support. Uh, but I think I think it's got to the effort's got to be comprehensive. And I say in 84, 86, we were only trying to be comprehensive of the tax code. Now we got to be comprehensive from the tax code across to the spending items. In fact, beyond that, I think we've got to organize government to do this. And we could go this in this separate matter. I don't think there's any agency of government that's even ready to be able to do those types of analysis. Even the sub pieces, such as housing policy, integrating housing policy from HUD, housing and urban development, with housing policy and, and treasury uh, through the tax code, with housing policy that the regulators do by the way they try to uh, uh, control lending policies through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We wanted to have a good housing policy promoting home ownership by those who could benefit from home ownership. We need a much more comprehensive uh, approach that cuts across agencies. And I don't think I don't think governments has actually even organized to do it. So it's a big it's a big lift that I'm that I'm asking for. But I, I don't I don't know any way out of it. I, I don't know no. any other way out of it. No, I, other, I, other than, as you say, to sort of go through the one little disaster after another and then uh, uh, have some 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 reaction or count on the Fed to just, uh, you know, bump up interest rates like crazy to uh, some other, uh, you know, yeah. have a, a major crisis to, to get something back to, to normalcy. Yeah, it's it's very difficult when you have not a single PhD economist in Congress, as far as I know, you've got. President Biden, who's taken Social Security off the table politically, Trump is saying the same thing. Uh, you know, everything we take off the table, we leave in our kids' laps, right? It's uh, in our own, as you're saying, this is not all in the future. It's it's happening uh, uh, right in front of us uh, every day. The um, So uh, w- would you... You know, my view on Social Security, just to be clear, would be um, that we need to sh- basically freeze the existing system in place and put a brand new one in its place for current workers and future generations, one that people are investing collectively in a global index fund, like a Singapore-type Provident fund, with government contributing uh, on a progressive basis to help the poor um, and the disabled, the unemployed. And we we keep the payroll tax in place to pay off the accrued liabilities under the old system. So we pay off what we owe under the old system, but we shift to a new social security system that uh, was fully funded. And yeah, this would be a bigger burden on younger people, but promising something to them that they're not going to be able to collect anyway is not, which is what we're now doing. They're in effect, they're, they're being uh, hurt uh, over time by what we're doing. They just haven't been told about it. So, so, so you, have, you have a you have a dilemma in a system that is is almost entirely pay as you go. As you know, this is that the yeah. transition you're talking about about requires some generations to pay twice. Right? They have to pay for right. for the 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 benefits that are going to current beneficiaries as well as the build up of their own funds. I, I think, I, I guess I'm not sure I go as far as you do, but I, I do think we need an add-on uh, type of system, which would be along the lines you're mentioning in terms of, of people having some private ownership. And I think we need a better base of support. This probably is pay-as-you-go for uh, 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 for uh, for people, but but it would be it would particularly for people above, uh, say, median lifetime incomes. Uh, we would be basically flattening out uh, the benefit that they get as 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 part of this long transition. Either way, uh, there's a, there's a big transition that has that has to take that has to take place. And I and the dilemma with with relying entirely on private savings is, for the most part, people have never have never. Uh, or a huge portion of people have never uh, actually saved up the money. So you you've got the dilemma. Of if they have the money, a lot of them will spend it down. If they don't have the money, then you have government sort of controlling. But, it. So I, but, but to be clear, I, I wouldn't be. Um, this is, I think government's going to have to come in with some some minimum level of support, no matter no matter what the transition is. So, so my plan would be 
I force everybody, everybody has to contribute 10% of their wages into a fund. They have their own account, uh, but it's not managed by Wall Street. It's just invested collectively in a global index of stocks, bonds, and real estate securities, just like the, the Singapore Provident Fund. It was just a single fund that everybody's participating in. And then you get your money out uh, on a cohort basis in the form of annuities. So Wall Street has no uh, involvement here, but there's also a, a guarantee of a zero real return. So what you, you get back in retirement, um, you re, let me say, when, once your assets are converted to inflation-adjusted annuities, uh, at that point of the conversion, your assets are going to be at least as large as what you put in adjusted for inflation. So you're guaranteed under what I'm proposing a zero minimum of a zero real return. Uh, so I think that gets at the point you're making. It can't be voluntary because people will not save on their own. They won't contribute on their own. We're seeing that in the 401k system. Some such a large share of people who have the ability to contribute don't or don't contribute enough. And, uh, and then there are a lot of people that aren't participating at all uh, because their employer isn't participating. So that's been a disaster from my perspective. So you have to force people to save and you have to uh, force the investment to be um, uh, diversified with no cost, global, um, indexed, no involvement. And, uh, and then you can, you know, that's really kind of what happened in the corporate world when they had all these defined benefit plans that were underfunded in the 80s and 90s. They converted all of them to DC plans, right? But they grandfathered uh, the old DB plans. I, I think they did this in a way to screw their workers because the workers were about to, you know, middle-aged workers were in the, at the age where they, if those old systems had stayed in place, they would have accrued much higher benefits over the next few years because their the benefit formulas were based on service. So uh, IBM and these other companies uh, who can, I mean, virtually all of corporate America had DB plans, they switched to DC plans. In the process, they ripped off Tens of millions of workers. We've we've done a, we've done a lot of work at at, at the Urban Institute, the Retirement Project, mainly looking at state and local plans, but others. But but basically, the the classic defined benefit plan was always designed to mainly favor the senior workers who had been there a long time, and to give very little often to the junior workers, particularly those who move from job to job, because as you know, it's if you leave uh, a plan, if you leave an employment right. that has a DB plan at mid mid age, say mid mid life. Uh, your benefit isn't indexed at all for even for inflation from the time you leave at 45 to when you finally get benefits at 65 or whatever. Uh, I think that's partly because, you know, my my sense of history is is these DB plans came along when employers sort of said, well, you know, I, you know, my older workers really been around and I, I want to help them out. And they never sort of figured out uh, what that really meant for everybody else within within the firm. I, I actually think this is not unrelated to why unions have failed is that that in many cases are fallen uh, fallen in terms of membership is because they often have not represented younger workers, and I think that's yeah, even think. a lot a lot of the disputes that are going on are going on now is that the younger workers really are not being that represented by 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 all these efforts to protect the older workers. So uh, uh, I agree one hundred percent. Senior older senior management in uh, these in these non unionized firms wanted to uh, basically rip off. Uh, people with these complicated formulas that benefited them, that they knew would benefit them. And the same thing with the older year. Well, what's going, uh, what's just going on in all these state local uh, reforms is that uh, uh, the elected officials don't want to ask the taxpayers to pay and they don't want to ask uh, uh, the older workers to pay. And so what they've done in part, uh, they still haven't solved the problem, but in part, they basically decided that they're going to tax, they're going to make a, def a defined benefit plan that literally taxes uh, younger workers so that younger workers, when they leave, you know, they come into, say, teaching and they do it for 20 years and leave. Uh, they come out with a benefit that's less than the much higher rate of contribution, the present value of the contributions they're required to make. So that the tax is now being imposed upon younger workers with a negative employer provided 
benefit, at least that employer provided benefit. So so this is still going on. Which means we will not have people going into teaching or staying in teaching uh, who are qualified to do it. So the whole thing is really uh, a picture of generational expropriation, a picture of a kind of a, a national decades-long Ponzi scheme that's ripped off, it's ripping off successive generations in many different ways uh, to the benefit of current generations. And I think my view is that this is happening in our country where it's not happening, let's say in Scandinavia, because we're so heterogeneous. that, uh, And because of that, uh, we don't see other kids' kids, other people's kids as our kids. We've, I think this is very tribal, that each of us is after our own uh, welfare, taking care of our own kids, but we're not concerned about, uh, if we're white, about the black kid um, who's not going to get a decent education and is going to have to pay you know, super high taxes, uh, confiscatory taxes uh, to help pay off my benefit. And same thing for the black parent who's uh, not concerned about the white kid. I think there's some something really fundamental about why our society is operating this way that that goes beyond just you know the facts of the matter. That there's there's something. I, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a I agree in part, but I'm I'm a little more sanguine. I, I think many of these problems were created accidentally by people who really didn't understand what they were doing. You know, like the Social Security reforms in the 70s that created all this automatic growth. You know, they they were basically trying to make sure that 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 benefits per person stayed sort of whatever same level they had achieved in the past. They did more than that uh, because they didn't deal with a lot of issues. Uh, I, I don't think they had fully thought through all the, the generational consequences at all. I say the same thing for I think the when employers initially set up these defined benefit plans, they were trying to sympathetic to their older workers. They really hadn't thought through what this meant if they really had to fully fund this uh, these plans for everybody else. Uh, which once Congress started requiring that, uh, uh, got them to actually back out of making them. Uh, the, the dilemma, the dilemma where you're right is once people have this set of promises, and you say, "Well, wait a second, we've got to cut back on your promises to be able to do something for." You mentioned the black kid who who needs who's being neglected in in the educational system. Are are the are the working the working family, which I think are in the same boat. You know, we call the working families often the blue collar workers, the people who aren't you know don't have the college education. You know, to be able to help them, we've actually sort of got to cut back on on what the rest of us have all been promised, and that's that's where uh, it becomes an appeal to selfishness. And then both political parties play to that game, right? You know, they say, well, you know, Larry, you're entitled to your Social Security benefits. Larry, you're entitled not to have your taxes increased because we've already promised that. And all of a sudden, you say, oh, that's right. It's, you know, I'm convinced somebody else, somebody else is the problem. You know, it's those damn Democrats or damn Republicans over there who, who, uh, you know, it's if I'm not rich, it's the rich. If I'm, if I'm rich, it's the not, the people that won't work. It's always somebody else when we think they're somebody's asking us. They're taking something away from us. So I don't think, yeah, system, I guess I, if, you system, if you have a system that hasn't made so many promises, it's just more natural to say, well, yeah, there's a problem in Ukraine. Let's, we got increased revenues. Let's put some of those revenues there because you know, I'm not necessarily asking people. I mean, technically, I'm taking money away because the rising taxes come with the rising economy. But I'm not I'm not taking away something people feel they've been promised. Question. How financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer. Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. 
Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. Well, I guess, you know, I agree, except that I think uh, this is more... um, systematic uh, expropriation than you. I don't think it was accident. I think uh, what, you know, I, I developed, as you know, uh, this system of fiscal accounting called generational accounting and fiscal gap analysis that looks long-term. And we're going back now to like 1989 when we first did, I and Alan Auerbach and Jagdish Gokhale first put out this uh, study of generational accounting, a methodology that has been used and is now systematically being used by the European Union, every three years they have this fiscal sustainability study for all the 27 members of the European Union. They do fiscal gap accounting and look through the infinite horizon at whether or not you need uh, tax hikes to pay for all the outlays that have been promised, taking account all the demographics and everything. So I've gone to successive directors of this Congressional Budget Office and said, you have to just stop doing this uh, current uh, deficit accounting because the deficit is missing all the stuff that's kept off the books uh, and start doing fiscal gap accounting and supplement that with generational accounting that shows exactly uh, what the burden will be on future generations if we current generations don't pay more or take less. And they've refused to do it. Uh, Both Republicans and Democratic uh, well, you're, 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 you're discounting your success because they really have have gotten more into infinite horizon, at least accounting for uh, for liabilities. Uh, that, that's but, partly due to to, to your your uh, your pressures. It's not the full well, generation in Social Security, but not for the entire budget. Right. right, uh, right. Social Security. Yeah. But let me I just tell you and the, the listeners here a story, an anecdote about uh if you look at the trustees report for Social Security, there isn't this infinite horizon, unfunded liability, um, looks at the present value of all the projected benefits, minus present value of all the projected receipts, including, and also takes into account the trust fund, treats it as a real asset. That difference right now, 65.9 trillion, as I mentioned earlier. So how did that calculation come to be? Well, Paul O'Neill, who was the secretary of treasury in 2002, uh, was, was also the chief trustee. And he uh, decided, because Kent Smetters, one of my co-authors and Jagdish Gokhale were working at the treasury, they convinced Paul to put this into the trustees report. So it's been there ever since. It's been pushed further and further back into the appendix, but it's been there. But then Paul O'Neill was also trying to do fiscal gap accounting for the entire fiscal operation, for the entire government, not just for social security. And Jagdish and Kent, he, uh, he assigned them to take a whole group of people to Treasury. And for a year, they put together this study that was going to be in the president's budget. And President Bush, the, the younger, Bush too, uh, remember he had this VP Cheney. Uh, uh, Cheney uh, did not want this to appear uh, in the budget because they were trying to cut taxes or increase spending. Uh, they wanted to run a large deficit and not make it clear that we couldn't afford that. So if you recall, Paul O'Neill was fired. uh, And the very next day, this entire project of fiscal gap analysis for the US government, comprehensive, was uh, censored. They they closed down the the entire study. They did not include it in the federal budget. The president's budget was coming out about two months later. This has happened time and again. This is not, to me, accident or just people not thinking carefully. This is systematic. No, uh, I, I, I understand the, 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 the political side of it. I guess I was referring more to some of the early decisions that were made, uh, uh, yeah. as opposed to now now reporting on the dilemma that's been created, which is which is now backward looking and saying, let's admit the problem we're creating that we that which means we have to do something about it. That's different than than the creation of the problem in the first place. But let me just mention, you know, the one thing I've done, which was which is a, a, a related to what you do, but it's not exactly the same thing, but I think tries to explain some of this in a little simpler manner for uh, well over a decade now, maybe, maybe it's two decades. I've been putting out this annual study of lifetime benefits and taxes for each generation going all the way back to uh, uh, 
beneficiaries, I think, starting in 1960. So for over a course of 100 years. Now, it makes a very simple assumption. It's, it's hypothetical people, and I use the, the Social Security's uh, assumption on, on uh, average earnings, uh, uh, so on and so forth, uh, for people. But, but uh, for a typical couple uh, that uh, uh, earns average earnings their entire life, I usually take a couple that has average earnings for the higher earner and uh, uh, a low-wage earner for the second earner. Uh-huh. And I look at what their lifetime benefits are. Well, actually, I do it for all sorts of people, but I'm just giving this as an example here. If you look back around somebody retiring about 1960, lifetime benefits were about uh, $300,000, $350,000. If you go to about 2015, they got to over a million. If you go to today, this is in current dollars. I mean, constant dollars in today's dollars. Uh, you go to t- today, it's about 1.3 million. And if you go to a millennial couple, it goes up to $2 million. Now, this is Social Security and, and Medicare together. And I also do the lifetime taxes, at least the taxes that are dedicated to the uh, to the trust funds. Uh, and those never keep up. So the, the differential uh, is huge for every generation. So each generation keeps getting promised much more than, the, than they've... Uh, uh, that they're putting in into the system. But to me, that's a way of explaining very simply, not simply that the system's unsustainable, even though technically speaking, that's not what these numbers prove. But they also give elected officials some sense of when they do reform, how much are they providing to each generation? They can actually look at numbers like that and say, okay, how much do I want to adjust lifetime? How much should lifetime benefits go up for high income, for middle income, for low income people? And when I put it in a lifetime uh, benefit context, it also allows uh, more easier ways to trade off things like longer lives in, in retirement vis-a-vis a higher annual benefit. Turns out the failure, and I've got a number of studies on this, the failure to adjust for mortality is a very regressive, a very regressive provision uh, mainly benefiting high-income people. The reason being that if you take people in the bottom of quintile, over 40% of them either never make it to age 62 or are already retired on disability. So yeah. uh, so looking at lifetime benefits per person or per couple at different income levels is a way to actually, in a more narrow sense, get at some of the generational issues that you're talking about. But also when you do reform to think about what you want a generation retiring in 2050 to look like relative to a generation that's going to be retiring in a few years in 2030. So, so Gene, as we wind up here, since it's been about an hour, um, I think we've done a pretty good job depressing everybody about the realities of our fiscal condition and the fact that the politicians are not really doing their, their aren't responsible and, and maybe understanding a little bit about why this is happening in the U.S., but not in other countries, uh, about our failure to be kind of connected as a as a people. Uh, assuming this is going to continue and assuming we're going to have economic and financial distress, uh, do you have any kind of personal finance advice for, let's say, somebody who's 25 listening to this, uh, what they should do? Should they not count on Social Security? Should they... Uh, should they look to leave the country? Uh, and I mean, seriously, is that uh, something that if you were 25 and single that you would uh, and you you thought there was just no hope that the U.S. was going to get its act together here and that we we're going to have sky high tax rates and low benefits? Uh, oh, so so I'm, I, I would I would start off by doing something I haven't done very much in our discussion together. I, I would give the optimistic side of this. We're an extremely rich country. Uh, I did a piece recently noting that GDP per household just recently exceeded $200,000 per couple. Uh, It doesn't take a lot of bending of these growth curves to solve the problem. You know, it might not solve the problem in the near term. Near term, we've got some fixes we have to do. But long term, for the 25-year-old, it's pretty easy to economically solve the problem. Just get those get those growth curves on the right path, where they're not absorbing all these additional revenues and devote them to the things we 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 can do better, uh, and that compounds over time. And especially for the 25-year-old, it means uh, uh, that that the, the fix is moderately easy economically. Politically, it's difficult. 
because we're asking people to to to, to back away from the promises in terms of their personal finance. I would say it's it's nothing that uh, that you haven't really put out in, in a number of of your uh, your pieces of software and other things that people uh, can buy. But but you know diversify well. Make sure you have a solid base upon which you rely. And I think some Social Security is going to be there for you if you're young. Don't worry about that. I think some amount of health care is going to be there for you. Uh, but then uh, build for the long run on top of that base, because if you get into real assets, that's housing, that's uh, stocks, as opposed to just lending to other people, which is sort of like a savings account. You get into the real assets, you get into the higher rate of return, type of, of, of financial opportunity that uh, that can really compound over time and, and be willing to save a bit uh, from the start uh, so that you can really get that compounding going. It includes paying off debt, by the way, as a form of saving. Uh, yeah. And and you, you're likely to come out pretty, pretty well uh, in the long run. Good. Well, listen, uh, thanks so much. This has been uh, fun and uh depressing at the same time, but we're ending on a, an upbeat note. People need to save and, and take care, take responsibility for themselves because fundamentally you can't trust Uncle Sam or your employer to uh, be your father or mother in this context. You have to really uh, realize that they're not going to be your friend necessarily uh, into the future. So Gene, th thanks so much. I, I want to ask everybody to uh, subscribe to uh, remind me of the name of the sub Substack. Uh, government we deserve. The government 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 we deserve .substack .com. This, this is Gene Sterling's Substack newsletter, and look up um, Gene on uh, the internet. Uh, check out his Wikipedia page. Uh, go by uh, Dead Men Ruling. Is it? Uh, That's right. And. Uh, his other books, and you will get uh, really well-versed in what's really going on in our fiscal world and our policy world. So um, again, thanks so much, Gene. We Thank you. Gene. Thank you, Larry. And, and let me re-recommend uh, uh, your re your listeners to, to make sure they're on your Substack column as well. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.